0: Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foose. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Health Trip Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode because most of the women I coach are perimenopausal, menopausal, or postmenopausal and often feel very confused about making a decision whether or not to take HRT or hormone replacement therapy and or BHRT, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. HRT started in the 1960s, but became very popular in the 90s when the first clinical trials on HRT and postmenopausal women were started. It was called the Women's Health Initiative, launched by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. In 2002, the first results were shared, declaring that HRT had more negative than beneficial effects, and thus HRT use was dropped dramatically in the US by about 46%. Years later, the WHI trial was reanalyzed and showed that HRT use in younger women had multiple beneficial effects, including reduced cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality, meaning that HRT was protective against all ways of dying. And the women in the WHI study were at least 10 years out from menopause when they started the HRT. Needless to say, women are still confused and worried about starting HRT or BHRT and are struggling through this phase in their lives with symptoms such as weight gain, cognitive decline, loss of lean muscle mass, night sweats, loss of sleep, loss of libido, vaginal dryness, osteoporosis, thinning hair, and more. By the time my midlife female clients get to me for health coaching, they've already tried out several diets, take a cocktail of antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and sleep pharmaceuticals, has lost her sex drive, gained weight, lost her vitality, and has low self-esteem. Just as the kids are leaving the nest for college, mom's at home and feels like crap. On today's episode, my guest and I are going to dive into women's health, the misconceptions around HRT and BHRT, and how to best prepare yourself with the current medical data so that you can make an informed decision for yourself. Dr. Wendy Troubeau is a functional medicine doctor whose whose specialties lie in gynecology. She received her MD from Tufts University in 2000 and has been practicing functional medicine since 2009. Through her own struggles with mold and metal toxicity, celiac disease, and a variety of other health issues, Dr. Troubeau developed a deep sense of compassion for what her patients are also experiencing. She is passionate about helping women optimize their health and their lives. Dr. Troubeau and her husband founded the Five Journeys Functional Medicine Clinic outside of Boston and offer services such as IV therapy, primary care, women's health, and functional medicine. She's also just released a new book that she co-authored called Dirty Girl, Ditch the Toxins, Look Great, and Feel Freaking Amazing. So before we start... On the podcast, just a little medical disclaimer, by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this product. podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast, and let's get started. So you're a functional medicine, OBGYN, and there's not that many of you out there (laughs) because I've looked and I'm in a big city, I'm in the city of Chicago and we don't really have any. So tell me a little bit about what the difference is between a regular OBGYN and a functional medicine OBGYN and why after going through medical school, you went on that path.
1: Sure. So Technically, I'm no longer an OB because I retired from obstetrics in 2009. So I only do gynecology. And I would say in the field of obstetrics, you don't really need functional medicine because that's all about having a mechanical process occur. You're growing a human. It comes out of you. Hopefully everything's safe, easy, and and without complication. So you don't necessarily apply functional medicine to OB. What, What I do though is in gynecology, women can have a range of dysfunction. So if you look at reproductive issues, if you look at men- menstrual issues, if you look at polycystic ovarian, insulin resistance, there's a whole host of things that trickle into gynecology. And so I would say as a conventional gynecologist, my training was birth control pills, which work really well for pregnancy prevention, but they don't address the underlying cause, which is there's some imbalance that we need to get to. And so when I pivoted to move into functional medicine, I'm still a gynecologist. I still prescribe the pill. And I also recommend things and do a deeper dive and look for like, what's the root cause? Let's figure this out and fix it.
0: Right, right. I mean, and that's so wonderful because so many people are unaware of just talking about birth control you know if you take birth control you probably need other supplementation to support that because it's going to deplete you in other things right yeah,
1: yeah. it also alters the gut milieu and so it's it's not the panacea for everything right I, it's it's good for some things and then you nothing is without cost
0: and so within your world of functional medicine especially working with women when you let's say you take blood work for example how does that look different you know i know from my own training that in the world of conventional medicine, we're looking at normal ratios based on, you know, the average person. And quite frankly, I don't wanna be compared to the average person because I take care of myself, right? But I know in functional medicine, we looked at optimal ranges. So can you just speak to that?
1: Sure, so I always say to my patients, there are things that I will pick a fight with that Quest didn't pick a fight with because they're looking at life or death, they're looking, are you going to die with a level like this? And I'm looking at what is optimal, like you mentioned. And so, you know, we're stricter. Basically, we're looking for what's, what's going to keep, get and keep you healthy for many, many years. So fine, you can have a CoQ10 that's 0.5, but you're not going to have great energy. So we want to boost that up. We, we want to see that at least over one. And if you have a cardiac history, we want it over two. So we're stricter. Uh, we're looking for lower levels of inflammation, higher levels for general, you know, B12. It's so funny. I had a patient, I said to her, you have legit the lowest B12 I have ever seen in my life. And I said, that's not something to be proud of because boring is good. And you don't want to be at the extremes. You want to be, you want to be at the healthy levels. And, and I said to her, the consequence of that is that your homocysteine is crazy because you're not processing it and you're not healthy. And she was 78. So I said to her like, the stakes are high when you're 78. It's not mm-hmm. just like when you're 21 and you go, oh, you've, you know, you've 20 years before you have to worry about this. Right. It, this is now. So I said to her, we really need to address this because it's crazy low, but she didn't trigger as abnormal on Quest. Quest still said she was normal, but it was 93. I was like, this is a really right. big problem. We want this to be above 750. It's a big, it's an ocean of difference.
0: Absolutely, Yeah. And so the gist of this podcast is really to dive deep into hormone replacement therapy and also um, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy because I'm 54 and I'm I've been in perimenopause now for four or five years, and <laughs> and yeah, it's 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 a super fun uh, roller coaster ride that I really don't want to be on anymore. But in all fairness, it's been pretty smooth sailing for me because. I did choose to take bioidentical hormones and I live a very healthy lifestyle, but yeah. there are so many women clients of mine who all have this very similar complaints around this time in their life. Um, so do you, I'm sure you see that too, you know, weight gain, fatigue, um, cognition, de- cognitive decline, low muscle mass, like all, you know, what else are you seeing out there?
1: I mean, that uh, hair loss, hair loss, sleep changes i I was laughing when you said perimenopause because last summer, our next book is all about how to transition into menopause gracefully. Our first mm-hmm. book was our toxins. And then, uh, this one, next one is about transitioning gracefully because last summer I was in the midst of a rip hot flash and, mm-hmm. and he, my husband chose that moment to ask me what a question that I considered to be completely useless and inane. And it was something about like, should I bring the cantaloupe on our vacation? And I looked at him and I said, <laughs> a hot flash. Do you value your life?
0: Right. That is not life
1: or death. And right now I'm out. Right. I'll figure that one out myself. Right. I'm just laughing because, because perimenopause is an (laughs) evil witch and it can really be, be challenging. So you, women can experience things from all ends of the spectrum. So changes in sex drive, brain function, hot flashes, changes in periods, either too frequent or too infrequent weight changes, microbiome changes, I mean everything changes. And
0: everything changes.
1: Everything changes. And so yes, if you said to me could this be yes, <laughs> could this be all of it. And and it's a huge gamut and women often miss the signs and simultaneously women also often blame perimenopause when it's something else. So there's mm. a lot there's a lot of interplay and overlap between Hit perimenopause and when i hit the skids for toxins i was like oh perimenopause
0: but right. it was toxins
1: so, right you know fix the toxins and i was like oh i'm not really you got it and, and that's
0: what functional medicine is all about finding that root cause like what yeah. what's that funneling down to yeah. and there are so many women out there who are so afraid to take hormones because it's been ingrained in us through the past decades that taking hormones equals getting breast cancer or ovarian cancer or something else. Right. And so I can't tell you how many women come to me and they, they want to like literally quote unquote, sweat it out when they don't have to, or perhaps they've inquired about hormone replacement therapy with their conventional doctor, their conventional OBGYN and I so many of them get the same response. This is just part of life. You don't need it. Just, you know, you're going to have to just deal with it and get used yeah. to the aging process. Well, you know, I call BS on that. Like we don't have to accept any of that. And um, so I want to start by talking about the women's health initiative, the WHI study, which one is, was one of the most prevalent, largest study of its kind back in the, it started in the early nineties, yeah. but a lot of women my age Are very unfamiliar with it and its outcomes, and then its reanalysis of what it was about. So, can you just, you know, in a snapshot, give us the lowdown on this?
1: Yeah. And I I have to tell you, Jill, it it was even at the time when the study was stopped early. The reason everybody knows about this study is because it was stopped early. When studies are stopped early, people go crazy. And it was stopped early because what they noticed was in the subset of women who were on estrogen, eight out of a thousand got breast cancer more than the baseline. And that was a statistically significant number. And so the study was stopped and everybody heard about the study and then it was all we talked about. So the study looked at women who are at least 10 years away from menopause who uh, both had and didn't have their uterus. And if you had your uterus, you got one set of hormones which included progesterone to protect the lining. And if you didn't have your uterus, you got only estrogen. I have to tell you this, the study was, you know, it didn't, it didn't allow women who were significantly suffering from perimenopausal symptoms to participate, which nobody comes in my office and says, let me protect my bones. They say, I want to kill my husband. Right, So so, the wrong women were studied and they were really far away from menopause. And the farther away from menopause you are, it does look like the risk goes up if you're going to start hormones and you're remote from that, that transition. So they used a subset of women who it really wasn't a good group. And then if you really needed the hormones, you weren't allowed to participate. So the whole thing was a little goofy. And so it was stopped early because they found this very small increase in breast cancer. But another problem with the study is that they were using non-bioidentical hormones. And let's talk about that for a minute because Mm -hmm. essentially most hormones back in the day were from pregnant mare's urine. And if you take the first couple letters of each of Mm -hmm. those, Premarin Mm -hmm. was the most common form of, of estrogen on the market, which is from a pregnant mare. Now, if you're a pregnant mare and you get Premarin, you're going to be stoked because that's what you need. But mm-hmm. if you're a woman, you shouldn't be using pregnant mirror's urine because it's, a, it's close enough to occupy the receptors, but far enough away that your body has to work extra hard to, to metabolize and detox off of it. Mm-hmm. So you make it even harder on the body. So bioidentical hormones look like what your body is producing and non-bioidentical hormones look not like what your body is producing, but close enough that you can utilize it
0: walk us through the hormonal changes during premenopause through postmenopause starting in a let's use a healthy woman in regards to all of her sex hormones or her sex steroids
1: okay I'm gonna go a little bit of a high level because this is so we can get really drilled in or we can go high level so I'll start okay. high level and we can certainly drill down so okay. when you're born if if everything's working you have two ovaries and they are start to function and put out, put out eggs at puberty. Mm-hmm. And when your eggs are theoretically limited, meaning you have what you have and you're gonna make what you make. And when you use up your store, you're done. Okay, that's the, the going conversation. Mm-hmm. So what goes into this is your, your brain says to your ovaries, hey guys, time to do your work. Your brain is putting out something called follicle stimulating hormone or FSH it goes to your ovaries and sort of lights them up and your ovaries produce an egg. This is assuming everything's normal, right? And when you produce that egg, your progesterone levels go up. If you fertilize that egg, your progesterone levels stay up. And if you don't fertilize that egg, you have a period, okay? That's big picture. And estrogen, estrogen, estrogen tracks a little bit before progesterone. So in, in perimenopause, what starts to happen is your brain is still saying your ovaries, hey, get to work, give me, an, give me an egg, except your ovaries are getting to the end of their functional span. So they are at times not able to produce an ovary, I'm sorry, an egg. So you're, in the perimenopause, what happens is you're irregularly, starting to irregularly ovulate because the ovaries aren't responding in the same mm-hmm. way to these signals. So follicle stimulating hormone is kind of cranky and it's like, well, if you're not going to listen, I'm going to talk louder. So follicle stimulating hormone goes up when the ovaries stop being as responsive. And that's why we use that as an indicator for, are you approaching menopause? What's happening? So the interesting thing is over, you like for reproduction, you like to see it in single digits for perimenopause, you start to see it creep up. Once you're over 20, technically you're considered menopausal and women are mad. Like why, why are you calling me menopause? I still have periods every month or I skip a period. That's because it takes a couple of years for you to fully deplete the ovaries and to catch up with what the brain has already recognized. Mm -hmm. So at a level of over 20, you're, you're menopausal, Hmm. which means your fertility is significantly decreased. It's not zero though, because you're still making eggs. So you could still potentially get pregnant in this perimenopausal period which is really awkward for a lot of women because they think mm-hmm. oh well, I'm over 45 I'm not fertile you are be careful. So back to what's going on when you ir- when you don't ovulate you don't set off that chain of events that occurs that causes you to have a period. But because you're still producing some estrogen you're making an estrogen li- lining in the uterus and that grows. So now imagine that like a tower of blocks. If the blocks get high enough, it gets unstable. So, as you have unopposed estrogen that's just making the lining grow, you're building a lining, but you don't get the signal to shed it. And now you have irregular bleeding because mm-hmm. you're not, it's an ovulatory, meaning not ovulatory, no ovulation bleeding because the lining of the uterus has built a level so much that you just have to shed it. So, that's kind of a nutshell for what's happening. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes you'll produce an ovary, you'll have a normal cycle. Now, as those hormones start to dip, that the precipitous drip co- drop causes causes issues for women. So sleep disturbances, crankiness, brain dysfunction, memory issues starts to it can alter the way you uh, build muscle and your testosterone levels. So th- there's all these domino effects that start to happen for women and those are very disruptive. Now, let's sort of let, let's we ha, we can't say anything about perimenopause without talking about the adrenals because your adrenal glands as you approach menopause there's a pathway in the adrenal glands where the adrenals pick up what the ovaries are not doing. So, the adrenal glands has two major pathways. I'll, I'll super simplify it. One is fight, flight, or freeze. Keep you alive, keep your, keep your blood pressure up, and get you out of the way of that oncoming truck. That's prioritized, right? That's life. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other one, which is as you start to transition into menopause, you have DHEA turning into testosterone and estradiol. So you can get, and by the way, progesterone is over on the fight, fight flight, or freeze side, so you have your progesterone, your testosterone, and your estradiol being produced in the, in the adrenals. Mm-hmm. However, because we're so stressed and because we don't sleep enough and we eat food that throws us off and we don't, may not exercise properly, we're not as in balance. When you get to perimenopause, the adrenals can't pick up the slack because they're pretty overloaded. Mm. So as the ovaries start to quiet down, the adrenals should pick up. Meaning you don't have to transition into menopause in a way that's that's challenging. It can be graceful, but it requires o- adrenals that are that are well cared for, essentially. And you can't start caring for your adrenals when you hit perimenopause. You have to really start ahead of time so that they're prepared.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. Okay. I want to talk about testosterone for a second, Mm -hmm. because a lot of women don't really understand the role of testosterone. Some women aren't even aware they have testosterone, but we, we do. And it gives us our zest for life. It helps us build that lean muscle mass. It's, it's, it's good for our our brain health um, among so many other things. Right. But um, some, as we age, our testosterone, just as our estrogen goes down and our progesterone goes down, so does our testosterone. Mm-hmm. And I I remember after having my fifth kid, and I was only in my early 30s, that my ovaries, because testosterone is also made in the ovaries, that my testosterone basically came to a um production came to a halt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a lot but, going on. Like yeah. After five kids. At a younger age, like your body's been working really hard.
0: Yes. And I felt depressed and I went to my OBGYN and I said, I feel really depressed. Like I don't want to have sex I had this and that my hair was thinning and, um, she tested me for testosterone. Now this is the difference between a conventional uh, doctor appointment and an OB and a functional medicine OB appointment is they don't all, they don't really look at your testosterone levels when they take your blood work. Right. Right. And so, um, I was lucky that my doctor who was a conventional doctor saw a, my depression being correlated with having my fifth baby and tested for my tea, which was like in the tank about a, for like a 90 year old woman. So I took synthetic testosterone because back then we didn't have a lot. We didn't have choices, but what are some of the ways let's say someone does have low T what is, um, a normal range looks much lower than an optimal range especially if someone's very physically active and what are ways what are ways in which we can increase our testosterone
1: so this is really interesting jill so you can't talk about hormone balance and having proper hormone balance without also including toxins as a sort of parallel track because your liver is responsible for taking care of and managing the hormones that we're producing. Our livers take care of that. And let's just spend a minute talking about how that happens because that matters for when it's dysfunctional. So your body produces these hormones and your liver recognizes it as a substance to be metabolized. So in some level, your body recognizes your toxins as I'm sorry, your hormones as potentially toxic and it goes through two phases. Phase one, is where you change it from a somewhat inert substance into a metabolite intermediate that's actually more toxic than what it started out as, which makes no sense, but that's what the body does. And then phase two takes that very toxic metabolite and binds it. In the case of hormones, it methylates it, put on a methyl group, which is a, a carbon and hydrogens. So it puts it onto that and that makes it not only chemically inert, but it makes it water soluble you then take that bound hormone and put it into your gut and poop it out. This is the ideal world, right? Everything's working. Now there's a lot of places things can go wrong here. One, phase one is often quicker for women than phase two. So you have this toxic intermediate that your body can't deal with and your body's very smart. It's not going to let you get sick. It's going to say, whoa, we have this toxic intermediate of all comers for hormones, we're going to put you in the fat. These are the women who say, all of a sudden I'm gaining weight and I can't do anything about it. I exercise, I sleep, I eat right, and I'm gaining weight. This is some kind of toxins issue. And in perimenopause, hormones can act as a toxin. So one place it can go wrong is if phase two is too slow. There's tons of foods and supplements that can improve phase two. Another place it can go wrong is if your liver's out of whack, if your liver's stressed, if it's dealing with too many things other than your hormones, if you drink, you know, for women, uh, I have a lot of women who are like, I don't drink more than two glasses of wine a night. And I'm like, that's way too much for women because, because it has to deal with all your hormones too. So your liver, it's a toxin. So if you're drinking alcohol, if you're taking acetaminophen or Tylenol, if you're taking ibuprofen, these are all processed through the liver. Mm -hmm. So what What another place it can really go wrong is if your liver is suboptimally processing, if you're exposed to other toxins and the liver's like, whoa, I really need to deal with that because that's going to kill you too. It's going to divert its attention from proper hormone balance into toxins. So if the liver is suboptimally processing, you can see you can see lower testosterone levels because the sex hormone binding globulin, which binds to testosterone is too high. Mm -hmm. That indicates that the liver's improperly processing on that side. And then there's another place this can go wrong, which is in your gut because Mm -hmm. you've put these bound hormones in and in theory, you should just poop them out. Great. Mm -hmm. However, if you have overactive enzymes in the gut that are produced by inappropriate bacteria, they're going to come around and separate that hormone from its binder. When you separate it, it can't stay in the gut because it's no longer water soluble. It's fat soluble. It has to go back into the bloodstream. You start the rat wheel all over the body says, wait, I already dealt with you. And I can't deal with you right now. Cause I'm dealing with all these other things, hang out in the fat as a storage Depot. So there's a lot of places that hormone balance can go wrong for testosterone because mm-hmm because there's, there's just, it's a really intricate dance that the body's doing. And so you want to make sure that you're not stressing or challenging the liver. You're not exposed to other toxins as, that are distracting the liver and that the gut's in balance and that the adrenals are also in balance. So they can pick up the slack of producing testosterone. There's a lot going on, right? Like, how do you keep it all balanced?
0: Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all about that gut health, right? If the gut is not healthy, if you've got leaky gut, if it's impermeable, you know, things leach out, they cause chronic inflammation, things get stored in as fat and, you know, no wonder we don't feel good. No wonder our hair is falling out. No wonder our skin looks bad. Mm -hmm. You know, no wonder we can't, you know, achieve the health and fitness goals that we want. We have a lot of roadblocks when you you were talking about the methylation process um, with the liver, What about those women such as myself who have the MTHFR genetic mutation? How does that come into play? And so many people don't even know if they have it because they're not, they don't even know about it to get tested for it.
1: Right. So let's start with what is MTHFR? MTHFR stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. And in our bodies that the methylation is how, MTHFR does methylation and methylation is one key way that we use phase 2 in our liver to detoxify toxic substances so it's one of six pathways we can go down so if so first off about 40% of the population has one or two genetic mm-hmm. mutations in MTHFR if you have one mutation you're Say you have no mutations and you're just 100% effective at processing your B vitamins and methylating and doing this whole thing. Cool. You're 100% effective. If you have one mutation, your impairment is somewhere between 60 and 90% effective. So you're 10 to 40% less than your colleague next to you. If you have two mutations, it's somewhere between 30 and 60% gets done. So you're 30 to yeah, seventy percent, forty to seventy percent impaired, basically. Right. And what that means is when you're exposed, I mean, and I have two copies of MTHFR mutation. Yep, so, so do I. Uh, these increase your risk for poor metabolism of hormones, poor processing of hormone of toxins, <clears throat> issues with heart because it doesn't allow you to process your homocysteine through the whole process. You can build up in homocysteine, which is a heart risk factor for cardiovascular disease. The other branch of the MTHFR mutation increases your risk for uh, more anxiety, depression, OCD, uh, uh, emotional disturbances. Mm -hmm. So you either have cardiac or emotional or both if you have one of each, like Some of my kids have one of each, which I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, but so it will impair your body's ability to take care of the things it's presented with. One way around that is anyone who has an MTHFR mutation, my response is, okay, plan on taking activated B vitamins for the rest of your life, because the B vitamins, when they're activated, they're ready to donate their methyl group. So your body doesn't have to do any work to get it to its, its prepped form. Just take it. You're done. Right. And it decreases the the lift. It's not as heavy of a lift.
0: Right. And I think, you know, we have to say, we have to talk about folic acid for a second, right? How many, how many women in pregnancy are given folic acid to take, and they don't even know if they have this genetic snip or not. And it is the non bioavailable form of folate. And that's what we want.
1: There's so much in this Jill, actually. So step one you could have a genetic mutation that prevents you from converting folic acid into folate. Step two, if you have any alterations in your um, stomach acid, you can have difficulty converting folic acid to folate because you need adequate levels of stomach acid to convert. And do you know the number one decrease for stomach acid is stress and we're all stressed. So anyone who's stressed with a mutation should, and I always say to all my patients who are looking at being pregnant, just take an activated form, take the folate. So you don't even have to worry about it, right? Get get tested just so you're aware of what your risks are long-term.
0: Right. And all of this affects our hormones on a daily basis. So I want to go back to um estrogen metabolism. Mm -hmm. And I find this fascinating. I want to talk about the those three different pathways that estrogen can take. And what I find out, I, I didn't really even know about this until um this past year that when you make that decision, like I did to go on hormone replacement therapy, now I don't take estrogen yet. Cause I'm still in perimenopause, but for when you get in, into the postmenopausal stage and you decide to take estrogen, there are these two pathways, the two OH, the four OH and the 16 Okay. Now I might have listeners out there saying, what is she talking about? Because I was like that too. So what am I talking about? And why is that important to know before you take estrogen?
1: Yes. So if if you're not the best methylator, and so there's so many things that go into this. I actually remember when I learned this whole pathway mm-hmm. because it hadn't I didn't learn it in residency. I learned it in my functional medicine training. And I remember being horrified because, you know, we're giving hormones to women right and left. Even the birth control pill needs right. to be processed. So Basically, when you process your hormones through, it can go down less harmful pathways, which is the 2-hydroxy, or it can go down more harmful pathways, which is the 4-hydroxy. You would do expect when you're... Processing your hormones to have some 4-hydroxy, but the majority should not be, because when you have the majority 4-hydroxy, these are in these are more uh, reactive substances that are more likely to be oxidated and cause oxidative stress and damage the DNA. And if if all of that sounded like gobbledygook, basically 4-OH runs the risk of damaging your DNA and can be pro-cancerous. So. Yeah. You want to, you want to not go down that as much as possible. And one way to support that is, well, there's a million ways to support it, but make sure that you're processing the hormones with providing the body with the methylation so that it can do that and Mm -hmm. making sure the gut is intact so that you're not recycling, Mm -hmm. making it toxic and and going down a pathological pathway.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but is it, do genetics play a role in which and how your estrogen metabolites choose which path to go down. And can there be like a genetic mutation that signals the estrogen metabolite to go a certain way?
1: There definitely are. especially for, uh, I don't, I don't know them off the top of my head, but there definitely mm-hmm. are. These are single nucleotide peptide sing, yeah. SNPs that yeah. can make you more likely to process your hormones in one way versus another a hundred percent, which is so, why it's great to know your genetics and your detox mechanisms.
0: So how come more doctors don't find out this information before they're giving hormone replacement therapy, especially estrogen to women?
1: I think that, especially in conventional medicine, they're about 20 years behind. Conventional medicine is 20 years behind. I mean, so in 2002, the Society of Endocrinology came out with the guideline that thyroid-stimulating hormone or TSH should be below, below two for optimal function. I remember being at 10 years later, approximately 10 years later, maybe a little less, being at the Harvard course on on fertility and women's care, and they had not adopted that standard. And this is almost 10 years later. So typically shifts in, in how to care for people are 20 years behind. It takes 20 years to really become commonly used. And so I think the goal of functional medicine is get that data sooner, practice it, but there's a huge lag. And so it's not from maliciousness, it's more from that data has not trickled in yet. Because mm. one, study, the, one study generally doesn't change behavior. It right. has to be a groundswell of, of studies that prove and prove and prove and prove, and by then 20 years have passed, but then yeah. it becomes common.
0: Yeah. But there are tests out there that will look at this pathway, because um, I've looked online and I'm considering doing it for myself, you know, just because I'm a a lab nerd anyway. I love seeing numbers and figuring out all the data about myself, but it can get a little bit overwhelming. Right. But, it, yeah, you know,
1: we use it a lot. I mean, we, uh, we do. Can I say? test names? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So we use the Genova complete yep. hormones test a lot. It's a urine test that people do at home
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then you have to have a functional medicine provider order it, but right. it's looking at what's your two, four, ratios. And then our goal, my job is to optimize your gut, optimize your methylation, optimize how everything flows and make sure, you know, if we're, if we're giving you bioidentical hormones, it's easier to process, but you can still build up four OH. OH. You don't want to do that. So we're watching. How do you do with that? A lot. Most of my patients are on things that inhibit beta-glucuronidase, which is that enzyme in the gut that disattaches hormones and makes them recycle. Mm-hmm. Most of my patients who take hormones are also on that.
0: Mm. I love that you do that test and you really look at that. That's yeah. that's that's great. All right. So now I want to talk about the decision on whether or not someone decides to take HRT or BHR. Now, I will say that, no <laughs> by, well, and I, and I am in agreement with you, but for a lot of people, it's, it's a really difficult decision, especially if maybe a family member, like their mother or their grandmother or their sister had breast cancer, or uh, even if they're not a carrier of that gene, you know, like I was saying in the beginning, that WHI study made us all really afraid. And so I, I will say that hormone replacement therapy is covered by health insurance plans. Right. But bio to some degree, but bioidentical hormone replacement therapy is not.
1: Not true. No, because uh, so estradiol patch, bioidentical, uh-huh. that's covered by insurance. Oh, that's the, good to um, know. Progesterone, micronized progesterone is covered by insurance. What's not covered by insurance for women, which burns me, is testosterone. So if you need testosterone, the only levels that are on the market are male levels, which are way too high for women. So, so testosterone is not covered, needs to be compounded because the levels at which we need it is so much less than men, but no, you can absolutely get things covered. You can't get the creams covered. So if you want to compound a cream, have it be really specific and drill it in, that won't be covered.
0: Yeah. My BHRT is not covered by my insurance plan. So perhaps oh. it's, you know, state by state and insurance mm-hmm. company by insurance company, but, yeah. um, always good to double check and ask. Yes. So, so this, so a, cl- a patient comes into you, she's at that point where she cannot deal with the lack of sleep, the night sweats and so on. And sh- she wants to have that discussion with you. Yep. Um, and, she's confused between HRT and BHRT. What's the discussion you have with her?
1: So in, in our practice, except for the birth control pill, we are not using hormone replacement therapy unless it's bioidentical, because from a philosophical standpoint, we feel that it's not right to give women something that's so hard for their bodies to, to break down. So we don't, I, I do prescribe the birth control pill, which is not bioidentical. So Right. Setting that aside, I'm not giving women anything unless it's bioidentical. It's just not negotiable. Okay. I mean, I'm not. I'm not comfortable with it. I think it's harmful. So, okay. Uh, we're, so the discussion is more about: Is it appropriate to start hormones in general? Yes. It's always going to be bioidentical. So the the things that we're looking at for is it appropriate to start hormones is ha- have we done everything we can to optimize your adrenals? Because remember, your adrenals are going to pick up the slack. So uh anything, the, uh anything that'll support the adrenal. So avoidance of alcohol, avoidance of sugar, optimizing the eating plan, acupuncture, sauna, Epsom salt baths, body work, uh, adaptogens. Uh, these are specific substances that boost or quiet the adrenals depending on what they need. So optimize your poor little adrenals, make sure you're meditating, not a stress ball, exercising, all that, right? And then we've done that and you're still having trouble then we want to peel off if you're having periods then it's unlikely that you're going to need estrogen but you might need right. progesterone mm-hmm. and so if women are experiencing uh, mood changes sleep disturbances swings then i and even before they get into perimenopause you can have disturbances in progesterone so uh, we first start people on an extremely low dose, which is derived from yams, which is kind of interesting. It's a cream, not covered by insurance. It's, it's a more of a, it's a supplemental remedy. And if that doesn't work, then we move up to oral progesterone and started at hundred. It's covered by our insurance. I'm in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so a hundred right. micro- 100 milligrams of micronized progesterone. Take it at night. It helps with sleep. It's mm-hmm. relaxing. Yep. And you can go up to 200. And what I say is, let's check you four to six weeks after you start, and then three to if you're in good range, cool. We'll check you in like three to four months, and if you're still in range, we'll check you a year later. We'll just sort of keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. And then f- for estrogen, what we're doing is adding it in for women when things become problematic. So the um. And often the progesterone can impact sleep and hot flashes. So it, it can be impactful for women. And then the estrogen can be added in when women are really at the tail end of their menstrual life. You don't have to wait till the end, but, but typically women wait till the end. Right. And then again, monitor that. And talk
0: about the multiple health benefits of taking estrogen because so many people don't want to take it and you know, it's their personal choice, but let's speak to all the amazing things that it does for us.
1: Yeah. So I think the goal of it is to use the lowest dose that does the job. Yeah. Okay. And it's so funny. I have a patient who has no adrenal glands and her periods as a result, she hasn't had a period in three years because her, your adrenals play a huge role in normal hormone cycle. So her, her hormone levels were menopausal and she's 32. And I said to her, I'm not trying to get you to reproductive levels. I'm trying to get you to appropriate postmenopausal levels so that you, we protect your bones, we protect your brain, we protect your heart. So there's tremendous value in hormones when it's appropriately managed to absolutely keep bone health to heart health and, and brain and sleep and mood. It's like everything. It's like life, sex drive, right? Absolutely.
0: And so then when does testosterone come into the picture? And then are are you do you favor pellets over the cream or a patch?
1: I um I'm commitment phobic. So I've never liked the pellets because if you don't like the dose, you're stuck with it.
0: You know what? (laughs) I, I I when I started on testosterone, um, after I took the synthetic many decades ago, I took a break and then I started on pellets and I gotta tell you, I, I agree with you. Pellets were really rough because it's shot me up to over 900, which is like my it's like my teenage, it's like my boys who are athletes, right? And um, and my hair started to really shed at that point. Yeah. And because the testosterone converts to DHT and that for
1: a second, because I talk a lot
0: about hair loss and hair regrowth. And I just, I've been on a four month journey and I'm finally seeing hair growth back and stability, but that testosterone pellets are too high of a dose on the cream can really, why is it triggering hair shedding?
1: Uh, It's, it's basically male pattern baldness. You're starting to, if you kept on with it, you would have the shedding in the crown Right. Because that's how, that's the impact of testosterone on, on hair. So if, and your voice would deepen over time and your clitoris would get bigger. So we don't want any of those things. Right. So, so it's important. It is important. So I, I, you asked it like, what do I use? I tend to use testosterone in a compounded cream. Yep. And I'm always checking levels, you know, it's like, if, if we're doing that, we're going to check the levels and no, here's the thing. Women are going to tell you if their levels are off, because especially with testosterone, you get ragey, you get hair growth where you're rubbing it in, which is why you should rotate it around. Right. Uh, if a woman says, oh, my voice is deepening. I'm like, "Ah, your testosterone's too high. So what we try to do is do it in a cream, do a low dose test tweak test, tweak, test, tweak. So that yes. usually takes anywhere from six to 12 months to find your dose, mm-hmm. but any number of things can throw that off too. So you've gotten to your dose, you've been on it for years, but then you have a major life change, major car accident or move or something really stressful illness. And all of a sudden these levels are either way too high or way too low. It's because you've altered your adrenal participation in the matter too. Cause don't mm. forget if you have adrenals, they're picking up, they should be doing some of this work. And if they're not, it's because they're fatigued.
0: Right. Yeah. I switched to the testosterone cream and I am much happier and I go at a much lower dose. My hair is stable. I don't have that, you know, I didn't have rage, but I definitely remember feeling like a little bit more uh, jacked up. Um, But I did. Yeah. But I did have some great uh, weight resistant training sessions. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Right. Not that I want to get jacked up that way either, but let's talk about DIM because a lot of times when people are on hormone replacement therapy, they're also given DIM to take, and some people aren't. So I want to have you explain what DIM is and why it's an, an important component to this equation.
1: Yeah. So DIM is a precursor of indole three carbonyls, which is what you get when you eat broccoli or, or cruciferous vegetables, except my patients are always like, can I just eat more broccoli? And I'm like, please eat more broccoli. Go ahead. It's good for you. And you would need to eat a bathtub full of broccoli to equal what you could get in a pill. Mm-hmm. And so um, i trying to remember one of them, either dim or I3C is less shelf stable. So one of them, either dim or I, one of them is less stable and they convert. So I'm trying to remember, I've totally blanked on that, but dim and I3C help you process your hormones properly. So as I was referring to, to that inhibition of the beta glucuronidase, it's done with DIM, I3C, and we also use calcium deglucurate. So these are inhibiting the, the hormones from being unbound so that you can continue to excrete them in a, in a proper manner so that you're not building up again, shunting it into the fat, making the liver work harder. Mm. So we're, that's how we largely use it.
0: Okay. And speaking of excretion, is it normal that, it, or should a woman have a bowel movement every day to help excrete all of these toxins? Because I'm a carnivore and I coach a lot of women in the carnivore and animal-based um, space. And when you go carnivore, or animal, heavily animal-based, you might not poop as much as you normally did because your body is actually utilizing all these bioavailable nutrients. Mm-hmm. And, and I always, you know, focus on how to get those daily bowel movements back, especially for women because of the estrogen.
1: Yeah. So I remember in med school learning about what's called the oroanal reflex. And I thought that was hysterical eat and poop. Now by that time, I was already a celiac and not pooping regularly. Mm-hmm. So when they said, Every time you eat, you should poop. I was completely blown away. (laughs) I was like, "What? Who does that?" That's a lot of that's a lot of pooping. Yeah. So, but when you stop and take a step back and think and go, you know, you're eating two to four times a day, depending on your eating plan, Mm -hmm. and as even as efficient as you can get, you still have waste, and moving that waste is critical. So, my my. Bottom rung of acceptable is once a day. If you can poop every time you eat, that would be amazing and ideal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, it's difficult when you're on a carnivore diet to get enough fiber because that's also yes. helps uh, loosen up the stool, make it less packed, help you move. So that's that is a challenge, no question. Uh, yeah. I usually fiber, magnesium, um, aloe help, help move you along. You can do colon hydrotherapy. Sometimes you need to retrain the gut to move regularly.
0: Absolutely. And also the gallbladder, right? Because yeah. when you're eating a, if you're eating a bad diet, the standard American diet, your gallbladder can become very lazy because it really doesn't have to do too much work. Right. But when you start going low carb to um, animal-based or to um, carnivore, you don't have all that fiber in there. And not, all of a sudden you're like, to your gallbladder knock, 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 uh, wake up. You gotta like do your job now. And it's very Mm -hmm. hard to get it going again. So, um, yes, but pooping is something I work on with my clients all the time. And, um, whether they're eating a lot of vegetables or not, but so important to move those toxins out of the body.
1: critical.
0: So I want to talk about cancer, women who've had cancer and then maybe they were young and they had cancer, uh, maybe breast cancer, ovarian cancer. Now they're, um, sort of being pushed into menopause quite early Mm -hmm. can are are they candidates for taking hormones what does that look like
1: all right so we're going to tread really lightly here yeah so if a woman has had so let's let's go into different categories so if a woman has had uh BRCA1 or BRCA2 related breast cancer, which is a gene mutation that raises your risk for breast and ovarian. If a woman has had any cancer related to that, then the knee jerk would be no, because the estrogen will stimulate the cells to grow. So you don't want to do that. So that's one category. So I would say any woman who's had BRCA1 or 2, I would not give them estrogen. I think it's unsafe, you know, that they're at risk. But what about progesterone and testosterone? So progesterone and testosterone are both precursors in the adrenals for estradiol. And so, no, I wouldn't necessarily give those at therapeutic levels because you can convert both of them into estradiol. You can give something called 7-keto-DHEA, which can help mitigate the effects of lack of hormones. You can give that because that will not convert to estradiol. So that would be reasonable. And then working on adrenal health is critical. And then the other thing that you want to sort of put alongside that is any woman who's had cancer and gone through chemo and radiation has a boatload of toxins that we need to get rid of.
0: And mm-hmm.
1: getting rid of those will also help with how they feel because they're super toxic. Mm-hmm. You could even argue some major course uh, major causes of cancer are toxins in general. And so you'd want to Do a full evaluation and and make sure you're optimizing the liver, detoxing them, rigorously detoxing them. So that's the BRCA category. Then there's the non-BRCA estrogen estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor positive cancers. That's not a that's not a candidate for estrogen either, because you don't want to stimulate that cancer cell to grow again. And then there's the estrogen, progesterone receptor negative cancers. That's a possibility. And I say possibility as opposed to definitive, because when you've had breast or ovarian cancer, everyone is pretty jacked up and mm-hmm. nobody wants to do anything that's going to mess you up. And so, right. so you really have to understand, I mean, I wouldn't do any hormones without detoxing a woman first. And, okay. and that can take a couple of years because you really need to make sure the liver's working, the gut's working, the adrenals are working. I Call that the Holy Trinity. Yeah that, ma- liver and gut.
0: yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about lifestyle factors now. Yeah, so okay. now we've talked about women who are candidates for hormone replacement therapy, whether it's HRT or BHRT. And we've talked about women who have cancer who might not be candidates who definitely it sounds like are not candidates. Yeah. What are lifestyle factors um, for both groups of women in terms of managing their hormones?
1: Sure. I love this. So there's so many things women can do that aren't straight hormones that make a Mm -hmm. difference for hormones. So look at the foundations of life. So are you eating the right food for your body? I, someone people often say to me, what's the best way of eating? And I'm like, you know, that really honestly differs between people, but if you, so if you've had a history of cancer personally, then you're going to want to lean away from, uh, lean away from as much flesh and lean towards more cruciferous and add in more vegetables, but that's more just a broad brushstroke. So I wouldn't subscribe to that. There's one way of eating for every group, but generally minimally processed, low sugar and low to no alcohol is is meaningful and impactful for most people. Foundational behavior, make sure you sleep enough. Now, if your hormones are out of whack, it can disrupt your sleep. So what can you do to help your sleep? fix the adrenals, support the adrenals, give them what they need. That's acupuncture, massage, even meditation, breathing, Epsom salt soaks, adaptogens. There's a long line of things and things that stress the adrenals. We go back to the platform behaviors. Don't eat a lot of sugar, don't drink alcohol and don't be a stress ball. So make sure you manage the inputs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then, and then um, there are some... Estrogen receptor mimickers. I'll say they're not. They don't. They don't turn it on, but they can occupy the receptor and make your body think that it has estrogen, so that it quiets the symptoms down. So uh, Siberian rhubarb is one, and it's. It was studied, and it, they actually did a head-to-head with hormones, and it and it held up well with hormones. So that's another product that you could look forward to manage if you're not a candidate for hormones. But it's really about all the platform things because if your adrenals are, and and getting rid of toxins because toxins will shut the system down and put you into a state of inflammation and stress, Right, increasing your symptoms. So.
0: so, I think this is a great place to talk about your your new book that you co-authored, which I see behind you, called "Dirty Girl: Ditch the Toxins, Look Great, and Feel Freaking Amazing." Great title, by the way. I probably say that to myself twice a day. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So, tell me, tell us about your book and um, how you got so like into detoxifying?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I always think it's always personal, right? So I hit a health wall and gained almost 10 pounds, lost a ton of hair and had a rash on my face that was unremitting. And really, as we untangled all, it got very clear that I had too many toxins in my system and they had reached a point where they were now clinically relevant and causing problems. I had them for years. I'm sure. Look, I'm a child of the seventies. I grew up in the seventies. We ate sloppy joes for dinner. And then the eighties, we had microwaves like these are things I grew up with in microwaved in plastic. So I was piling things on as a child Mm -hmm. and then went to med school, was very stressed, got developed celiac, had gut dysfunction. So there's a lot of layers to this, but I really hit the wall when I was 49. And so I, I did all this testing on myself. And I said to my husband, I'm such a dirty girl. (laughs) And I'm the poster child for healthy living. How is this possible? And so, what we said was, if if it happened to me, and I am like crazy about super healthy living, it could happen to you. So let's make a roadmap so people don't have that happen to them. Don't do what I did. Read the book. Make changes. Avert it because it is coming for most of us in the form of fatigue, menopausal issues, weight gain, bone loss, cardiometabolic disease cancer. I mean, these are all, all of those contribute to those states of being. So we wrote this book so that people didn't have to go through what I went through because it was pretty awful.
0: Yeah. You know, I, that is one of the areas of focus I do um, talk about with my clients is the toxins, the incoming, you're spending money on me to help health coach you. You're spending money on functional medicine doctors to get all the data that you need. So you can make educated decisions. Um, You're spending money on this great, you know, organic food, but maybe your laundry detergent is, you know, tied, or maybe you're using, you know, dove shampoo and conditioner and, your nail polish, like how important, like how far do we go? Is it, is it, is this all or nothing because it gets expensive.
1: So it's, it isn't an all or nothing, but it is a constant process of improvement. Mm. So take whatever you're running out of. Well, okay, Jill, let's address the money. First off, it is expensive to convert into sustainable, organic, non-harmful, non-toxic. It is, it is more expensive. However, what you're stepping over is that it's actually a lot more expensive not to, mm-hmm. you, you know, I think it's something like one in three Americans has either diabetes or insulin resistance or pre-diabetes, though it's very costly. Yes. So you can pay now for something that's more expensive, or you can pay later to deal with the issue of it. Right. So right. I would say it's actually cheaper in the long run to mm-hmm. do, uh, do a more sustainable approach, but you have to look at it that way. Yes. It's a Uh, mindset. It's definitely a mindset thing. mm -hmm. So the way I look at it is Rome wasn't built in a day. You're not going to overhaul your house in a day, but what you want to do is figure out what you're running out of and level to the highest level you can. Okay. So, whatever's, you know, look, I have four kids. You have five. Did you stop at five yeah. or did you keep going? Oh no, I stopped. Okay. So you, I have four, you have five. You're, I'm assuming your youngest is out of the house already almost. Cause yeah. like yes. nine, At least 19. So yep. when you had five kids at home, you were doing a lot of laundry. So you're going to run out of laundry detergent way before someone who is just living alone. So mm-hmm. whatever's that thing that you use a lot of, that's the most impactful thing to level up on. Yeah. and then as you run out of your under eye cover up your mascara your lotion whatever your your floor cleaner i don't care what that is as you run out of any product that you need to buy level up
0: yeah that's a that's great advice and i often um, tell my clients to download this app i love this app and there's multiple apps out there but i use think dirty yeah and i think it's great you know you can plug in the product that you're actually want to find out about, or you can even plug in just the category of something you're looking for. And it gives you red, yellow, and green sort of warning color signs. And um, I think it's very, very helpful. And I agree, as I used up things, I replaced them with better for you options. And like we're, you know, this all goes back to balancing your hormones. It goes back to finding out, do you have an MTHFR genetic SNP or maybe another SNP, right? right? And all, all of it matters. So, you know, it's it's like you can, if you take your car in to try to fix the engine, but you're just going to fix one part of it, right? It's just not going to work as well. No. So eventually you got to fix the entire engine.
1: Yeah. I would say take a systems approach. Like you yeah. matter and it you're worth it. Yes. So, And the other app I love is Environmental Working Group or EWG. And I just heard mm. that they have an agreement with Amazon to showcase products. If you're searching, it'll show up if a product is EWG certified. So they're similar to Think Dirty, which is great because everyone uses Amazon and right. you should be using either Think Dirty or EWG. So they make it easy to figure out, is what I'm buying actually clean? And I really feel like if enough people vote with their feet, companies will get the message that, hey, we- yep. They don't, my consumers don't actually want all these toxins. Right. How do we level up as a company?
0: Right, absolutely. All right, so we're coming to an end and I have a couple, uh, few more questions. Uh, these are a little bit more fun, but what are your top three foods every menopausal woman should keep in her diet?
1: Well, is a category a top three? So any cruciferous yeah. vegetable, broccoli, okay. cauliflower, kale, cabbage. These are fantastic foods because they get you that dim endothricarbinols to help you balance your hormones. And so those would be, I mean, any, in that, within the category of, of the um, cruciferous or brassica vegetables, any and all as much as you can. Okay. So
0: my only concern with that is as a carnivore is that I know that there are a lot of oxalates in dark leafy greens. And when you have the MTHFR genetic mutation, one of the things, the, the, the leading uh, doctor on that is Dr. Ben Lynch, right. (laughs) And he wrote a great book and um, you know, he always is trying to push dark leafy greens, but then he was on a carnivore podcast and he said, you know, I kind of understand why you wouldn't want to have such high oxalate foods in your diet. Mm -hmm. So maybe perhaps for some, some people. So I do think, you know, some of the brassicas and cruciferous veggies, but if you have a problem with oxalates and you know about it, that might not work for you.
1: Right. Right. So that's absolutely something to keep in mind. Yeah. And then if you're going to eat flesh, that it be the cleanest flesh possible and grass fed grass finished for beef.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so what are some other foods?
1: I mean, that's like what I eat, right? Like the meat and vegetables. And then A little bit of grains, but really for me, it's about food that looks like itself and is minimally processed. So, absolutely. uh, I think that whatever is bringing you joy in terms of food would be my third category would be some kind of fruit, but probably just berries.
0: Yeah keep it low for sure. Yeah, yeah. A lot of studies on um, high fructose fruits, because um, there's obviously fructose and fruit and how it's um, yeah. creating such high levels of uric acid, which can cause a lot of problems for people, but that's right. a whole nother podcast. Okay. Um, what are your favorite supplements for menopausal women? You know, some supplements have to be given when you are tested and you know, you have a deficiency, but there are some that Tons. probably could be for almost everybody.
1: Yeah. Oh, a ton. So that when I mentioned that has the calcium B glucrate, the, uh, dim, the indole three carbonyls. That's one of my favorite, absolutely favorite. And then I really feel like everybody needs support with, uh, the B complex. So an activated mm-hmm. B complex and yeah. vitamin D because vitamin D regulates your gut, helps your bones, helps your mood. It's like every, the, everything sup hormone. So, and it is a hormone. So those yeah. would be my, some of my favorite for women and then adrenal support. So adaptogens, we use a ton of adrenal support in our practice, both to boost and to quiet, depending Mm -hmm. on what the needs are.
0: Yep. Yep. I used to be a huge fan of maca root that really helped me when I went off my testosterone medicine, you know, 30 years ago and helped me, um, get some testosterone going again naturally. So totally agree with the adaptogens. All right. My last question for you is, what are three things that the women listening to this podcast can do today to help further and educate themselves about HRT and BHRT?
1: So three things. So one, reject the conventional wisdom that mm,
0: love you're supposed that.
1: to fail as you get older. Really, just re- I just reject that. Like you called BS yeah. on something. I flatly reject that you're supposed yeah. to get worse as you get older. So reject that along with me. Yeah, and, I love that. And say okay, I'm really meant to be in balance. Two, find a provider who you resonate with and who matches your beliefs. And yeah. three, uh, I would say work on your adrenal health while waiting for that provider while, for your appointment because the healthier your system can be, the better your menopausal transition and experience mm. will be.
0: I love that, great, great answers. So we're coming to a closing and I know you have something, a free gift that you'd like to offer all of the um, listeners. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So as you look at cleaning up your life, it can feel really overwhelming to where do you start? So as a companion to the book, we created a non-toxic guide to healthy living, which is all about, well, what pans should you use and what makeup should Mm. you use and what's the best sauna and things like that. So that's all in the non-toxic guide to healthy living. And that's at fivejourneys.com forward slash promo P-R-O-M-O and five is spelled out.
0: Right, and I am going to make sure I put all of these notes, including a link to the free gift, um, the guide, in the show notes, so all of you can be able to find that um, whenever you want. And thank you so much, Dr. Trubo. It was such a pleasure to have you on my podcast to really break this down into layman terms, so that you know we can really understand because it is overwhelming information and it's a lot of science. And sometimes people just are like, "I'm too overwhelmed. It's stressful. I'm just not." going to even like think about it or learn about it but it's really important information
1: thank you it's been a pleasure being here jill and also we have a podcast called the five journeys podcast so nice i think people listen to your podcast probably would like ours too yes i'll I'll put
0: on all of your social media information your podcast so everyone will know how to find you because if you are looking for a functional medicine um well you don't really practice the uh OBGYN component. OB, and is, yeah. So that'll be OB, just the, the GYN, but a lot of women are looking for that and I will make sure that they know how to contact you. So thank you again. It was a pleasure meeting you. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of the health trip podcast with me and everyone take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine, doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts until we meet again, stay healthy.